Of course, by now, every one of you knows that yesterday morning, actually eight hours difference between here and Israel. So, But when we woke up yesterday, Israel had already been at war for six or seven hours. They were uh, attacked uh, ruthlessly by uh, terrorists, Hamas terrorists, in uh, the, the Gaza Strip. Brutal. And I want to tell you some things that have been going on. Uh, I talked this morning with Amos Garbatsky. Many of you have been to Israel with me over the years, and you know Amos. Amos is a veteran a paratrooper from the Yom Kippur War. He's been a guide ever since. His knowledge is encyclopedic. He is liberal. He is not a believer. But we have a great relationship, and we enjoy it. And I will say that this last year when we went to Shiloh and he heard Scott Stripling go through what they have discovered, three or four times after that he said, I have never been moved like this in my life. We need to pray for our most. He is a good friend. He told me this morning, called me and told me that he has a very good childhood friend who was married to a man named Giora Oz. They're both in the 70s. In 1973, which was 50 years ago, 50 years ago Friday is the 50th anniversary of the, uh, the surprise attack of the Yom Kippur War. Uh, Muslims always tend to want to do things on anniversaries of other events. He was a major in the Armored Corps at that time, and he was captured by the Egyptians. Uh, later, he was uh, out of the military for a while, and he uh, patented several inventions and developed a, uh, uh, on the basis of these inventions, developed a printing plant, uh, plant in uh, the kibbutz where they lived a kibbutz called Ba'eri. You don't know what that means. You, don't, you weren't familiar with it until now, but it's been on the news. We're going to talk about what happened there. We have to understand who these people are. So yesterday morning at, in Israel time at 0600 when the, when the bombing began, uh, they went into the safe space in their home. Now, I didn't have time with all the stuff going on this morning. I have pictures of some of these. When you go to these villages, these kibbutzim, that's the plural for a kibbutz, uh, that are near the border, you realize how, cl- how close they are, and they have bomb shelters in their homes so that when the alarm goes off, they have about 30 seconds because they're only about a, a quarter of a mile from the, from the fence into Gaza. And they have about maybe, maybe 20 seconds to get into their bomb shelter when missiles are coming. And so he goes into his, uh, he goes into his, his uh, bomb shelter, he and his wife, and for the next several hours, they are sending out reports for about 12 hours until about 6 o'clock last, last night. They went into their safe space, with, safe space with their son, their daughter-in-law, and two grandchildren. There's no electricity. 
There's no light. They don't know what's going on except the news things that they can pick up from their from their cell phone. And one of the things that they were told is that uh, Hamas has come in. They are wearing IDF uniforms. They're driving IDF vehicles. For you, you cannot tell them apart physically from from uh, Jews, and that don't trust anybody who comes and knocks on your door. And so he talks about this in this kibbutz. Uh, this kibbutz, he says, is about two miles from the border. Uh, looks to me like it's probably closer than that. I've been to a couple of ones near it. The electricity was turned off uh, about 9.30 last night. He says um, they lost communication completely. Israeli troops entered in only in the afternoon, so all night there was house-to-house fighting. And they're cut off from communication, and so nobody knows what has happened to them. The kibbutz had about 1,200 members living there, and many of them were murdered or they were taken captive and dragged off to Gaza. All night in the dark, the numbers are rising. Uh, this kibbutz Be'eri was an extremely wealthy kibbutz, wealthy community, and it was just being uh, devastated in this attack. And so, uh, by by yesterday, late yesterday evening, they had rescued some people. Amos was able to talk to one woman who managed uh, to get out, and she did not have any news on his close friends. But it's just an absolutely horrific situation, and we need to pray for them. This is just one kibbutz out of many. Yesterday, I learned that Gaza, the, the Hamas, had taken over eleven. And then this morning I read it was 22, but some many of these were starting to be regained by the by the IDF. Um, throughout all of this, he says, um, one of the interesting things is that they're just chaos reigned. All through the government, uh, communications were garbled. And if you think back over the last six months, you have heard a lot about these these uh, uh, demonstrations that were taking place in Israel that were, were quite divisive. They've been very divided over some political issues. And one of the things that was happening was that these uh, protesters were being funded by money coming from sources outside of, of Israel in order to, uh, you know, try to control Israeli Israeli politics. And what they helped to fund was setting up a number of networks of communication using WhatsApp. As of yesterday morning, they took all, uh, the, the, it all of those networks com- immediately converted to defense of Israel and pulling everybody together, and it was a better communication network than what the military had. So that just little interesting interesting insight of what was what was going on and so as the evening progressed uh, the casualty rate started off with 300 dead and about a thousand wounded and now it's uh, close to a thousand dead maybe and um, um, I think the official report is about 600 but it's going to go much much higher and just as I came this morning I got a text from Amos. They are alive. They came out. And so we can rejoice over that. 
Also, we had yesterday David Halevi, who is with Builders of Israel and is supported by us, and he uh, basically has his family, his wife, his two young daughters, his son who just went into the IDF about six weeks ago, whose name is English, American name is Wyatt, his Hebrew name is Asher. See, they all have double names, so you may get confused because sometimes I call him David Halevi, sometimes I call him by his American name, and so it gets confusing, but he's trying to keep the American name off of the Internet. So anyhow, um, he wrote, sent out a report this morning, and he said, many of you have been following the war in Israel. I'm writing to you from Houston, but I was able to get the last ticket on an LL flight for this coming Thursday, the soonest I could get on a flight to return to Israel. If he lands at the airport, all public transportation has been taken over by the military. So he may be three or four days in the airport in Tel Aviv before he can even get home. First, first things first, so... Uh, hundreds, he said, hundreds have been murdered and over 100 kidnapped and taken to Gaza, including women, children, the elderly, and soldiers, and Holocaust survivors. He didn't add that, but I knew that. Many are still missing. The videos Hamas is putting out are horrifying and inhuman. Despite what Netanyahu has said, there remains heavy house-to-house ground fighting in towns uh, where Hamas took control. Hezbollah is also provoking Israel along the northern border with Lebanon. I understand this may seem like just another war in Israel, but it is not. We do not expect it to end soon, although we pray for an immediate end. And his son, who's in the IDF, has been told to stay home. I mean, he's barely gotten through if he has finished boot camp, so they are to, uh, they are to stay at home. So let me just orient you in terms of these maps because you'll read about all kinds of stuff. So this area off here on the left, the dotted line is the armistice line for Gaza. This area along the Mediterranean Sea is Gaza. This is the Kibbutz Be'ir. And I have been to, um, we'll have another one here, Kafar Oz, which is here. And it's like less than 200 yards from their homes to the fence line. And I have walked that out to the fence line. I don't, I haven't taken any tour groups. I think I took one tour group there. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I thought, I just remembered that. Yeah, we went there. And then we went to Sterot, which is just a little, not quite as close, but you go to the basic um, uh, city hall, which would be, it, it's a permanent building, but it's about the size of a double wide trailer. And in the back, they have these metal shelves, big shelves, big, you know, uh, two and a half, three feet of distance between the shelves that are just filled with the remains of the rockets that Hamas has fired uh, randomly into uh, Sterot. You read that name all the time. So here's Sterot. Here's um, Be'ir. Down here, you'll read about this kibbutz. This is probably about five miles or so off Akim, and then down here is Beersheba. So I just wanted you to have the bigger view, and then we go in here. Here's Be'eri. Here's Nahal Oz. They were hit very hard. Here's Kafar Gaza, and uh, and then here we get to Be'eri, and I, I put 200 yards. He said two miles. We'll split the difference. Maybe it's Maybe it's a mile, but on the map it doesn't look like it's that much further than Kafar Oz. So we need to be in prayer for them. Now, Lindy sent these pictures. This is These things that you see up in the air here, these are hang gliders. 
that the that Hamas is used to fly over the fence and across the border and to attack uh, what was going on down below, which was what you've seen reports of this, this nature party, that you just a huge number, maybe a 1,000 or 2,000 uh, young people were gathered for this, this event, and they were attacked by all of these terrorists, and many of them are still missing, and parents have been told, when you come looking for your children, bring a DNA sample. This is a car that Hamas used to cross the border into into Israel, and the Israelis set it on fire in case it was booby-trapped. So we need to be in prayer for this this morning. We need to be in prayer for uh, Raleigh. We need to uh, for David Halevi. We need to pray for his family, his son. We need to be in prayer for organizations like. Um, uh, chosen People Ministries, who have a tremendous network of ways to aid. They, they've been raising money over the years to build bomb shelters in all of these vi- villages and building relationships with the Israelis. Uh, we need to pray for Friends of Israel. They've been doing the same kind of thing. They all have many people, many staff members on the ground, and they are well-equipped to help and to aid uh uh, many who are there. So we need to pray for them. We need to pray for uh, Builders of Israel and for David Halevi and his wife, Jesse, and their uh, their families that they live up not too far from Tiberias, for those of you who know a little bit to the south and west of Tiberias. So we need to pray for them. So let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer before we sing our first hymn. Our Father, we know that we live in a fallen world, a corrupt world. And we know that there are always these wars, and especially wars and persecution against Jews who are still your chosen people, and against Christians who are the body of Christ in this church age. And Father, we do pray for Israel, we pray for their leaders, we pray for wisdom, we pray that they can solve their problems and pull together in unity because they've been so divided recently. We pray for our nation. We pray that they would not just uh, have words of support for Israel, but they would indeed uh, do something that they would not seek to control how Israel retaliates. And that is so often the problem with this government. They want to control everything. So, Father, we pray that they would, their, their foolish attempts would be, would be restrained Pray for Israel. We pray that they would do what is necessary to do in this horrible conflict. And, Father, we pray for us because we know that we have the truth. The only solution to all of these problems is for people to be able to focus on hope. And hope only comes when we understand your plan and your purposes and when we orient our thinking to your plans and purposes, as as David was able to pray, that, that in spite of his enemies surrounding him and being against him, he could sing praise to you for all that you have done, for your bountiful grace. And so we need to come to understand that in the way we approach the problems and challenges in our own lives. So, Father, today as we remember our Lord's uh, death on the cross for us, and as we focus on your word, help us to be refreshed by our study of your word, be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ, and that we may be strong in our faith 
and may be a light not only to Gentiles around us, but also to uh, the Jews that are around us, that we may provoke them to jealousy, as Romans 11 says, so that they may desire to have what we have. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, and by which have been given to us many exceedingly great and precious promises, that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Before we open up God's word, God's word of truth this morning, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we pray that we may be fortified today in our study of your word, that we may be reminded of our responsibilities of believers who are in the new man. We are in Christ. We have a new position. We have a new identity. We have, along with that new identity, new responsibilities and expectations upon how we should live. We have new objectives. We have a new mission in life. We're to live our lives to glorify you and that everything should be submitted to that plan and to your plan, that we are saved for a purpose. And so the plans, the hopes, the dreams that we may have had before we were saved must be subordinated to your plans and purposes. And, Father, we know that you will give us the desires of our heart, meaning that you will change our desires to orient to your plan and purpose. So, Father, as we study today and we're reminded of how we are to live our lives, we pray that we may be uh, submissive to your will and orient to your will and come to an understanding of what these things mean. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are continuing our study in Ephesians chapter 5, which we just began uh, last week, really, and uh, that... At the top, that should be changed from Ephesians 4.32 to Ephesians 5.1 uh, and 5.2. But that's what we're looking at. We closed out with looking at the uh, last three verses, which, as I pointed out last time, I, I believe grammatically should be put together. And that leads into what we have in the next walking command, which comes in Ephesians, which comes in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, verse verse 2, that opens up the next section. And so we are reminded, or should be reminded, of several things as we go through this in our review. We are to be kind to one another by forgiving one another. The participle there for forgiving one another indicates the means or the manner in how we are kind to one another, that we forgive one another. And a lot of people, especially in our culture, don't understand forgiveness. They identify it with permissiveness, but it is not permissiveness. It is on our part that we cancel it out. It's no longer an issue, and we are not going to let it enter into our thinking as part of an issue. 
And I've also pointed out that that doesn't mean there aren't consequences in a relationship with somebody who has betrayed us or violated us in some way. And so there may be consequences of physical separation or geographical separation, but that doesn't mean that you harbor mental attitude sins. But it really will go beyond just not having mental attitude sins. We are to be uh, be kind to one another uh, by forgiving one another. The pattern for this is as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And so we have to understand how that happened. And that means we have to think a little more precisely about how we were forgiven. And when we did that, I took us to Colossians 2, 13 through 15, which teaches us that at the instant of salvation, that God made us alive together with him. Now, it doesn't come across in the English translation, but there is a participle there in the Greek that should be understood as a causal participle, explaining why we were able to be made alive together with him. Because he had already canceled or forgiven all of our transgressions. And people say, well, I thought that happened when I trusted Christ. Well, yes, in another sense. But at this passage, it's talking about when the sin penalty was paid for and was eradicated completely for every human being because it says at the end of verse 14 that this happened when Christ died. It was nailed to the cross. And I identify this as the first of four ways that we are Uh, that we have forgiveness spoken of in the Scriptures, and I called it forensic forgiveness. All it did was to eradicate the sin penalty, that indictment against us. But we're still spiritually dead, so that's not solved. And we still lack righteousness, so that's not solved. So just because Jesus canceled the sin penalty by his death on the cross doesn't mean we're saved. It just provides that that legal penalty has been uh, taken care of. And so we go on to read in verse 14 uh, that how did that cancellation take place, that forgiveness of all of our transgressions. Notice it's all of our transgressions. That's the grace of God. There's no sin too big for the grace of God. There's no sin that God didn't know about in eternity past. So this is how... God forgave us, and that cancellation happened by, and then you have another participle, by eradicating the certificate of debt. So both the word charizomai translated uh, canceled or forgiven in verse 13 is a, is a banking term, used as a banking term for forgiving a debt, and also the verb that is translated, that I've translated eradicating, they're both used in financial context indicating the eradication of a debt. It's like when you pay off your mortgage or a car note. You're no longer obligated. It's been canceled by the payment. So that certificate of debt, which is the indictment against us as sinners, uh, was against us. It's hostile to us because we're under that penalty. But he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That is so profound. This is such a rich passage. And it also 
had a spiritual dimension in terms of the angelic revolt in verse 15, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them having triumphed over them. Now, that doesn't mean that they're impotent. It just means that whatever indictments or charges they wanted to bring against believers uh, had been dealt with at, at the cross. So a third area of our review is that the conclusion to that was the first verse in chapter 5, that we are to imitate God as beloved children. Not dear children is not a really good translation of that. It is beloved children. And I pointed out last time that that word is used frequently of the love of a parent for an only child. And that because God is omnipresent and God is omnipotent, he loves each of us as if we were his only child. And that is a love that is beyond anything that we can imagine. So we are to, as his beloved children, imitate him. We are to be um, those through whom people can see a glimpse of something special in terms of God's love. That was the concluding paragraph in the previous section that began with a command back in verse 17 that we are not to walk like the Gentiles walk. Walking is a metaphor for how people live. How do we walk? We walk step by step, one day at a time, one moment at a time, one hour at a time. And so walking is a metaphor for how people, how people conduct their lives, how they live, how they think. Everything encapsulates every part of our, of, of our lives so that we are uh, told not to walk like the rest of the world. We are not to live like we did before. We have a different code of conduct. We have different standards. We are a different person. We are now... Uh, regenerate. We have been made alive together with Christ. We've been raised with him and seated together with him positionally uh, in, in the heavenlies. And so there are these new standards. And this is now, when we began verse 2, the third walk command in this section uh, that helps us to understand how we are to live. And for one, we are to walk worthy we have a new position. We're to walk according to that calling, that identity. Uh, in verse 17, we're not to live like those around us. And now we are to walk in love. And this is where we begin today. We talked about a few things about this last time. We are to walk in love as Christ also has loved us. So, in 432, we're to forgive one another, which is an expression of our love for one another, as Christ uh, forgave us, and we have to understand that. Now we are to love one another as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So there's two things. He loved us and he gave himself for us. And I think that and should be translated as he loved, even he gave. It is, is something in, in, it sort of goes from step one to step, uh, to step two. And, uh, so we are to walk. And this is a Greek preposition in, which often indicates means. That's really important. We walk by means of love. 
And so we have these commands. Now, the Greek I looked at last time, um, that we are to become imitators of God as dear children. It's a process of our spiritual growth. So part of that growth, becoming an imitator of God, is then developed as walking in love. And this is a present, active imperative. Now, that's really an important thing to understand here. Because, as, uh, because we have to understand that this is not an option for us. It's not something that, that we're to say, oh, well, maybe. Uh, if we're going to grow in Christ, then this is a command that for us. And it's difficult for under, us to understand this because as Americans, we grow up in a culture and as those who are related to Western civilization, we grow up in a culture where for 200 years love has been primarily uh, defined as an, as an emotion. And it's very hard for us to get away from that idea in our daily, in our daily life. So we come to this command to love one another. That's the bottom uh, right panel there. It's an aorist uh, indicative because we are to walk by means of love. Okay, so that gives us that means. The verb that is used then as Christ loved us, that's just past tense. So we don't have a command here other than the command to walk. But we do have it commanded in John 13 and 14 and 15 several times. Now, we go back. We just had the Lord's table. That's John 13. The opening verse is significant. I just love the, that whole series of chapters in John are, are my favorite. I think that tells us more than we can ever possibly accomplish about our spiritual life. It's so rich. And it starts off, and people forget this, that you've got to always contextualize things. That means you've got to look at the surrounding context. And it's introduced by John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, so in his omniscience, he knows what's about to happen. He's not being taken by surprise. Everything is planned out. God is a God of order and a God of purpose, and everything has happened happens because it's according to plan. It is God, it, God's intention for things to happen in this order in order to teach us. Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father. Having loved those who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, a lot of people miss the significance of this verse because then it shifts to describing what happens as they are have, get preparing for the, for the uh, Passover meal and Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And in essence, and I have studies on this, I'm not going to go through the reasons why, washing feet was a picture of forgiveness, because when he washes Peter's feet, Peter says, no, 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 you're not going to wash me. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you're not going to have a part with me. Now, the word for part really means a share of an inheritance in the future. Peter's saved, but there's no share of that. Would be, he'd be canceling out if he wouldn't let the Lord cleanse his feet. Not physically, but because what this is picturing is forgiveness. 
When a priest was ordained in the Levitical system, at that entry into the priesthood, they were bathed from head to foot. And that would have been one word that was used in Greek, luo, meaning a complete bath. And then every time that the priests went to serve in the tabernacle or the temple, they would wash their hands and they would wash their feet. They didn't have to take a bath all over again because they were already completely cleansed by that first ritual bath. But in the meantime, they would do things and go places where they shouldn't. They would commit sin in their lives, so they had to ritually be cleansed from that, so they would wash their hands and wash their feet. And that would be, in Greek, that would be a different verb. That's what Jesus tells, tells Peter is, I have to nipto. I have to wash your hands and feet. And, and so Peter says, no, give me a whole bath, Lord. And the Lord says, no, no, no. You all, he uses a plural there, y'all, meaning all the disciples, y'all are clean. He's stating the absolute fact, y'all are clean, except one. Guess who that was? That was Judas. But the rest of them were all already saved. That's what he means. You are already cleansed, but I need to wash your feet. You need to have that. That's a picture of ongoing forgiveness, ongoing cleansing. That's First John 1, 9. Whenever we sin, we have to have our hands and feet cleansed spiritually so we confess our sins and we're cleansed from all unrighteousness. And so then Peter begins, begins to get it. But that's part of love. That's how the chapter begins, John 13, 1. When the chapter ends, he comes, he, he comes back to that theme of love again. But he does this several times through the next three chapters. And he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. What he has demonstrated through this washing of the feet and the washing of the hands is there needs to be ongoing cleansing from sin in our lives, not just category one, uh, category three, which is the forgiveness of sins when we confess sin according to 1 John 1, 9, but also the forgiveness of one another, which is the fourth category, which is what's being talked about in Ephesians 4.32. And so Jesus summarizes this because it's all part of love for one another. And he says in verse 34, new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now, one another refers to others in the body of Christ. This isn't talking about, you know, loving the unbeliever, you know, the radical Muslim terrorist. It's not talking about loving him. It's talking about loving other believers. That loving him comes under a totally different category. So he says, the love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples. Not knowing you're a believer, but knowing that you're a growing, maturing Christian. If you have love for one another. So if you want to just be saved and that's it, that's fine. But if you want to grow and mature and glorify the Lord and fulfill God's plan and purpose for your life, then we have to grow in our love for one another. And this is, this is what Paul's talking about. Walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. In John fifteen twelve, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another. So it's a commandment to love one another. Greater, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So we are to love one another as Christ loved us. That's the standard. And how did he love us? 
He gave his life for us. Now, we're going to come back and talk about this next time in terms of substitutionary atonement. You know, most people don't understand what substitution is. They don't understand what atonement is. And if you talk about vicarious penal substitution, they're just totally lost because they don't know, they're not educated anymore. Nobody understands what these words, words mean, and they just get confused. So we're going to have to break all this down. Greater love has no one than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's what Jesus is about to do, is to give his life for us. And then in John fifteen seven, he says, These things I command you, that you love one another. Now, this is very important because we have to understand that love is not an emotion. You can't command an emotion. I can't say, hate someone. Now, you may have to think about somebody so that you can generate that emotion, But see, emotion is a response to something. So you had to generate some sort of image or memory or something before you could become angry. If I tell you to love somebody, you you have to have some basis for a being able to have have a response of emotion. So it's not an emotion; it is a mental attitude, so that. We have to remember this. So if I were to tell you to hate somebody or to be angry, and you say, well, I just don't feel that way right now. If I showed you a video of what the Russian soldiers were doing to the Ukrainian civilians in Mariupol a year ago, you'd become angry or you'd become sad or it'd be a little bit of both. You see, that emotion would be generated because of what you're seeing. It, it's some, something that then results in a response on your part. Emotion is a response to something. And so we have to, we have to recognize that. If I were to come in or somebody were to rush in the back of the church right now and, and interrupt things and run to somebody and say, your son was just killed in an automobile accident. How would you feel? You know, you, you believe that what he told you is the truth, that your son just died, and, and all of a sudden you have one set of emotions. Then about 15 minutes later, somebody else comes in and says, oh, I'm so sorry, it wasn't you. It wasn't your son, it was somebody else. Now how do you feel? See, our feelings, our emotions, are a response to what we believe, what we think to be true, or what we are observing, what we are, are seeing. If you see one of these videos posted by Hamas of what they are doing to the Israelis, how are you going to feel? There's going to be anger there. There's going to be a lot of sadness and sorrow, and there's going to be some, some, some anger as well. What does Jesus say? He says in Matthew five forty four, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. He's talking to them as individuals, but liberals come along and say, see, we have to love our enemies. That's just garbage. They've totally mistranslated it because God's love is not permissiveness. And that's how liberals interpret these passages. That love is an emotion, and that love is permissiveness, and love is kindness, and there's no accountability of what, whatsoever. So 
in First John, when we read First John, John tells us that God is love. He doesn't say, you know, God's, he doesn't know about God's love. He says God is love. He says in other places God is holy. This summarizes everything there is to say about the love of God. Now, liberals, because they start with the presupposition that love is an emotion, love is permissiveness, love is not doing anything harmful to somebody, then when they go read the Old Testament command where God tells when God tells Moses that when you, the Israelites enter the land, they are to kill every single man, woman, and child. So the liberal just freaks out. Oh, that's a different God. That's a cruel God. That's not the God of the New Testament. That's the God of the Old Testament. Well, no, you're wrong because the God of the Old Testament isn't focusing on the evil person and their wickedness or the criminal and their crime. He's focusing on the consequences, the people that are the victims. And so in order to love the victim, you have to deal with the criminal. You have to deal with the person who has started a war. If you were going as a believer you proper, with a proper understanding of this, uh, after uh, the beginning of the Second World War, you would understand that the way that you would show love to Europeans, the way you would show love to the evangelical Christians in Germany who were not going along with the Nazi plan, the way you would show love to the uh, millions of Jews that were being murdered was that you would go over there and kill every German until they all laid down their arms. That is loving your enemy. Because the same God that, that says, love your enemies, in Matthew 5.44, told Moses that there is a malignant cancer in the human race, and for the sake of the rest of the human race, you need to surgically remove them from existence. And so the way to love the whole human race is you eradicate the Canaanites from the face of the earth. Now you have a whole new understanding of what love is. You go, you go into a courtroom and you have a criminal who has committed rape and murder or theft or anything like that, then in order to protect the rest of us, which is an act of love toward us, they have to be punished. That's loving one another. That's, that's exercising the love of God because the love of God works with his justice and his righteousness together. They're all, uh, they, they are all combined uh, combined together. And so when we look at these things, it gives us a better understanding of what this love is. It's not some simpering sentimentality that is what you get from uh, liberal Christianity and those who uh, impose a fake definition of love onto, onto the Scriptures. So this is what is so important. We have to understand that Christ loved us, he had to take that punishment for us. God loved us in such a way that he couldn't just say, oh, I'm just going to save you because you're in my image and likeness. He said the sin penalty has to be paid. And so someone has to take that sin 
upon themselves, and that's Christ. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, and he loved us, even giving himself for us. And we'll see that this is important because this preposition here, huper, is used to indicate uh, indicate substitution. And so we have that in other places. For example, in John uh, 15, 12, and 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. It's that same preposition as a substitute for his friends. So when we get here, we have to understand that it is Christ who loved us to put himself in our place and take our punishment upon himself. John 6, 51, he said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give what? For the life of the world. There's that same preposition. It's substitution. So we have to talk about that. But we will come to that next week. What we see in the remainder of this verse is that that giving of himself is identified as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The word that is translated offering and the word that is translated sacrifice are Greek words that are that come together in Hebrews 10.10 10, and 10.14. In Hebrews 10.10 10, we read, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering, same word, of the body of Jesus Christ. For by one offering he has perfected or matured forever those who are being sacrificed, or sanctified rather. So in the, those two verses you have you have both of these words that are used in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. And next time we're going to look at this. What is substitutionary atonement? How do we learn that in the Scripture? What are the pictures? And one of the pictures are the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices that are listed in Leviticus, in the first part of Leviticus, And they all come back to the fact that this sacrifice is in the place of the one who is the worshiper. And that's exactly what these are saying. So we'll start with that, go to the sacrifices, starting with Genesis 22, work our way through the Old Testament, come into the New Testament, so we can really grasp what this doctrine is that we call substitutionary atonement and try to figure out what those words actually mean. I'll give you a little clue. Atonement is not an accurate translation of anything in the Bible. It was a made-up word. We'll talk about it next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come together to reflect upon the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and how that is a standard for us in understanding how to love one another and understanding our role in forgiving one another and to recognize that because of his death on our behalf on the cross, and that when we trust in him, that we are made alive together with him in his resurrection. We have new life, and we have a new identity, 
and we are to live consistent with that according to the obligations that you have placed upon us. We're not obligated for those things in order to be saved or to keep our salvation. We are obligated because we're members of a new family, and that's what's expected of us. But even if we don't fulfill those obligations, it doesn't cancel out our salvation, for that is eternal because the penalty was paid at the cross. And once we are made alive again, God doesn't reverse it, make us spiritually dead again. Once we receive his imputed righteousness, he doesn't take it away. And that all that is required of us is simply to trust in him, to believe that Jesus is the promised prophesied Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we will have life in his name. So, Father, we pray that those who have never trusted in Christ, those who've never understood the gospel, and those who have uh, never realized that, that they have a destiny in eternity in the lake of fire because of, their, because of the sin penalty that is visited upon all of Adam's descendants, uh, because of that, that we are born spiritually dead and with, an, with a destiny in the lake of fire. But Christ died for our sins so that we have an escape plan, and that is to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We pray you would make that clear to anyone here who's never trusted Christ as Savior, anyone listening uh, to this recording or watching live now, that that would be clear and they would accept the free gift of salvation by trusting in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So, Father, we pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.